Hey everybody, today I wanted to do something a little different. Um, this is completely off script. Um, I basically just wanted to speak from the heart and tell you a little bit about myself and my very long, long journey into uh, the world of publishing. This could you know, be uh, inspirational for some people and uh, for others it might be discouraging. I think it really has to do a lot with how much you care about uh, storytelling and writing. Uh, the reason that I really want to tell the story is because I see a lot of people out there who, um, you know, one day they wake up, it seems like, and they decide, hey, you know what, I think I'll, I'd like to be a writer, you know, and uh, with very little experience, uh, with very little knowledge of 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 the the craft, they just you know get in front of their computer and and they think, well, you know, I, I like reading books and uh, I like writing um, you know emails to people and you know I, I wrote some essays in college, so hey, I think I can be a novelist. And really, you know, the truth could not be you know more different. Um, it would be no different than say. Uh, someone picking up a violin and saying, well, I like listening to music. Uh, I listen to classical music, so now I can, you know, be, a, you know, a, a concert-level uh, pianist or, or violinist, you know. Uh, but for some reason, people have this weird illusion that they can just, you know, open up a... Um, a, uh, a word processor or, you know, get on a keyboard or something and just, and just start, uh, you know, writing a book. It's really the same as any other art form. It takes years and years, sometimes a lifetime of practice to really master the art of storytelling. Um, and even then, you know, it may not be necessarily something that's going to succeed because the competition is brutal, it really, really is. It's. I think it's more people nowadays are trying to get published um, than any other time in history. Um, I remember I tried to publish my first uh, book, actually, when I was 14 years old. Uh, as of this recording, I'm 47, okay? But my first uh, thing I tried to publish was called Dinotis's Adventures. And I sent it out to four publishers uh, when I was 14, and of course, I didn't have a chance, uh, and I didn't, I didn't hear back from any of those publishers, but I did hear back from an agent, and this is before computers. I mean, this is before the internet, this is before social media, so everything was by manila envelope, you know, just, you know, stack a bunch of pages in a manila envelope and drive to the post office and, and send it out the traditional way, and I actually got a response from an agent. And this person was like, hey, you know, it's like the agent was petitioning me. It's like he was saying, hey, you know, I, you know, I'm really good with clients and I can, you know, I can help you, you know, get your work published. And now it's like the opposite. Now, like writers are practically begging agents for representation. It's, it's very strange how, how much things have changed over the, over the past uh, few decades. Um, so... So really, I think if you're interested in being a writer, uh, my advice would be don't, you know, don't, don't do it. Don't, don't be a writer unless you're really, really serious. If, let me put it this way. If there's anything that I can say to you that will convince you not to be a writer, then, then don't, don't do it. But if you're like, I don't care what Nick says, who, you, this is just some dumb guy and no matter what anyone tells me. I'm going to be a writer because it's in my soul, it's in my heart, it's all I care about. Uh, then, yeah, by all means, pursue it. But even then, you should probably know that you might pursue it your whole life and never get anywhere. Um, and it, it's not a matter of not being good enough. It's a matter of just there's too many people trying to sell books these days. So, you know, but if you love it, if you really love storytelling, uh, you're going to pursue it. And I will say that's really where the joy for me comes from. When I'm 
deep in the story, when I'm lost in the in the story, and I I don't you know even know who I am in, in moments or where I am, and I just sort of become those characters, and I just I live that experience, and it's a very it's a very intense thing to do. And that's really where the magic, I think, of storytelling comes from. And that's why I've always, you know, loved uh, writing. When I was growing up, we didn't have, we didn't even have cable. We had one big boxy television that was like a big wooden piece of furniture. It was like a big table, our television. And you could like have dinner on it if you wanted to. It was just, it had a big wooden surface and you know my mom would put all these little vases and you know decorative little things on it and um and you know it was on this tv that uh we had like four or five channels and whatever just happened to play on those channels that's what you were watching and so you'd flip between the four channels and you know if you happen to get lucky and and oh he-man's playing we're gonna watch he-man because what else there's nothing else to watch you know nowadays I mean, we are overwhelmed with things to watch. I don't know how, you know, my kids even know what, what to be distracted by because they have, they have YouTube, they have Netflix, they have, you know, Hulu, they have, you know, um, they have TikTok. And so I think a lot of people who in the past might have read a book um, or uh, read a comic or something, you know, now it's like, well, they, you know, they, there's enough entertainment that you can look at on your phone or on your computer or on your television that you don't need to read. You know, a lot of people, or video games. I mean, I remember when the Nintendo Entertainment System came out, and there's basically one good game for it, which was Super Mario Brothers. That's what we played, Super Mario Brothers. Everyone played that. You know, whether you like platformers or not, it didn't matter. If you had a Nintendo, you had Super Mario Brothers because what else were you going to play? Now you get a game system and it's like, okay, you have a, your, your pick of a million different games. And even if you like a very specific type of game, even if you're like, well, I only like sci-fi shooters. Well, you got a lot to choose from in terms of sci-fi shooters. So, you know, it almost feels like, you know, books are obsolete nowadays. And I don't know a lot of people who like to read. And so sometimes I feel threatened by by just not even books but just things that aren't even books because I can't I feel like I can't really give like someone I know like an acquaintance my book to read unless they're really into reading but if you're you know just your average Joe I just kind of assume well they're not really going to want to read my book because they don't read anything if you don't read books you're not going to enjoy my my book you know at my age, you know, it's it's really too late for me to do anything else. This is all I've ever wanted to do. So sometimes I kind of think, man, you know, it should have been like a YouTuber, you know, or a Twitch streamer or something. And I have a few YouTube videos out there, but you know, they're not very popular. I, I, I don't I don't have a lot of views. Most of these YouTubers are are a lot younger, and they seem to love the camera and they love they love the whole audio video uh, media. And uh, when I was in high school, I actually had an audio video class. And I remember for our senior uh, Christmas um, uh, show that we put on for the high school, um, I actually made a cartoon. Uh, it was a Christmas cartoon with uh, Santa Claus getting run over by a jumbo jet, you know. And it was a very, very short. It was like a 30-second cartoon. Um, but, uh, you know, but it was, you know, it was fun making it, but ultimately my love was in the written word, you know, uh, I never really was, you know, I didn't get too excited about, you know, cameras and, and recording devices and stuff. And I think it's because I felt that the visual medium sort of put a limits on uh, the type of story that I could tell. I, I think if you were to give me like, I don't know, billions of dollars, then sure, you know, I, you know and, and I could make anything I want and I would make something like Ages of Anya the movie and that would be like, you know, Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or something, you know. So if I was George Lucas, sure, you know, I, I might enjoy making a movie, but anything short of that, um, you know, you know, I... I don't want limitations on the kind of stories I could tell because I don't have the budget. And, uh, and of course, you know, with modern 
uh, computers, you know, you I think you can tell bigger stories than than you could in the past, but it's still very limited, and you know. Uh, cheap special effects do look pretty bad. And so I don't want to be one of those people that tries to, you know, bite off more than they can chew by making some epic fantasy, you know, story with, you know, uh, a low budget. That just, that just looks terrible. Uh, when I was a kid, all I really wanted to do is tell stories. I just had stories in my head, just going crazy in my head. Um, and I just felt like the story needed to get out. Of my brain, there were like tumors in my brain. I had to get it out, and this is before I, I don't think I was even six, and I couldn't even write my name, like I couldn't spell my name, you know. And so what I would do is I would walk around. Uh, my father owned a, a pizza restaurant, and I basically grew up in the restaurant. Um, I didn't. I you know all my friends used to visit me at the restaurant. They didn't visit me in my house, and we played in the restaurant and I did my homework in the restaurant. Like my life was in a restaurant because my parents were always, always working. And so I was neglected a lot as a kid. I didn't have a lot to do. And again, you know, there was no cell phone, no internet, no, no, no handheld game systems. I had really had nothing to do other than just, you know, my imagination. And so I used to take these little pink tickets uh, that the waitresses would use to take down uh, pizza orders because this is before, you know, POS systems. So we used to write down, you know, what people wanted on their pizza on these little pink tickets. And on the back of the ticket, uh, it was just blank. It was just a blank pink page. And so I would steal those little tickets and I would write my stories on them. and uh, Or I would give them to the waitresses and I would ask the waitresses, you know, I have the story, uh, you know, I want to get down, you know, could you please write down whatever I'm saying? <laughs> and it was it was a very strange uh, thing, request. But And I used to have stacks and stacks and stacks of these, you know, loose pink tickets that had all my, all my stories on them. Um, later on, I actually got a tape recorder. I, I found one of these big tape recorders. Um, and I would get these cassette tapes and I would just record myself just talking into the recorder telling stories because it just it just had to get out of my head. And it's crazy now because I remember I would get these like 60 minute tapes and I would just talk for an hour and then I would write, you know, and then the tape would run out and then I'd be like, I need more tapes. And I'd be like going up to my parents and my my relatives and I, you know I'd be like you, you, do you have any tapes I can use I gotta I gotta record more story you know so I had a bunch of these hour-long tapes with my stories on them so this is really how I kind of you know started uh you know realizing that you know this is what I want to do with my life if you had asked me you know, what do you want to do with your life at six I knew exactly what I wanted to be and that was I want to be a writer um, I wrote a, a story called Thangar, and Thangar was about a swashbuckler because I used to I used to watch these uh, sword fencing movies with like Errol Flynn and um, you know, those old black and white you know fencing movies which I thought were really cool. And so I was going to make a character who's like a fencer, you know, and uh, and but whenever that the uh, characters would before they would start a fight they would say on guard you know and but what i heard them say is thangar that's what i heard thought they were saying and so i just named my character thangar you know um and so i wrote the story uh about thangar and i put you know i quite evolved beyond pink tickets i actually had a little uh ring binder with you know uh lined paper and i wrote the story in there and one day I forgot my binder in Country Pizza. And I came back to the restaurant. That was my father's restaurant, by the way. I came back to the restaurant and I saw um, my binder there. And I opened it up and I saw my story, but it wasn't my handwriting. And I was like, what the heck is going on? It was so bizarre. It was like, well, that's my story. But those are my my words. Those are my letters, you know. It was very strange. And I guess what had happened is there was a busboy 
named Charles Brusino. And I guess he always uh, he also had writing ambitions. And so he just I guess he just found this 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 notebook and he opened it up and he saw this kid's writing and he thought, hey, I can help this kid out. And he decided to edit my work. And he, he just did a, a real simple edit to improve the grammar and the spelling. And it was basically the same thing. And I was like, wow, this is this random guy just decided, hey, I'm gonna edit this this kid's work. And it was really nice. It was really something I really uh, appreciated. And, uh, and that kid, you know, he, he was a busboy at the time. He was older than me by, you know, s- several years. Um, he, um, he, he decided to move to New York City, and he became a writer for the New York Times. And so that was great. And I tried to keep in touch with him, but he disappeared. So, Chuck, you know, if you're out there, I, I, you know, I, I feel indebted to you a lot. And uh, if you're somehow listening to this you know, podcast, please, uh, please reach out to me. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. And then um, later on, you know, when I got into third grade, um, we had a creative writing class. And of course, you know, I said, well, I got to take this class because I want to learn more about writing. And I remember everybody just loved what I was doing. Everybody loved my stories. They loved reading my stories. I was always the kid that was, I was always the creative one in the school. I was always the kid that had all the great ideas. And every other kid basically wanted to to know what I was doing. And at the time, I actually created um, a superhero comic. And uh, it was called The Red Panther, which looking back, I don't know, it seems kind of stupid. But I wanted to write about sort of a Black Panther type character. But... I felt like, well, I can't write about Black Panther because he already exists. And so I said, well, I'll just call him Red Panther. <laughs> and so the logic is really kind of dumb. But, but so, that's, so that's what I did. And, and you know, even though it was, they were called the Panthers, they're actually a lot more like Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. You know, they, they, all, they were basically ninjas with bicycle helmets. And I came up with these characters way before the actual Power Rangers came out. I'd never seen Power Rangers. I don't think Power Rangers existed in the early 80s. So you could say that I I sort of accidentally invented the Power Rangers because it was a group of characters and they all had different colors. The Red Panther was the leader. And then there was Green Panther and Blue Panther. And and they're all like ninjas. They all did martial arts. And uh, all my friends, you know, they, they wanted to be a part of this somehow. This got them excited. And so, so of course, I, I created like this little club in my school based on my stories. And I was Red Panther and, and my best friend was Blue Panther and another friend was, was Green Panther. And, um, and so this went on for, for a while. And then um, one, uh, one year, my dad wanted to go to New York City because he liked to just go there for, for travel. And I said, Dad, you got to take me with you. I got to go to DC Comics headquarters and tell them about my great idea, the Panthers, you know? I was nine years old at the time. So my dad took me to, uh, he took me to, to DC Comics headquarters, kind of, kind of reluctantly because I think he knew that they were going to laugh at my face. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I went over there and I had a little uh, Matchbox. If you remember Matchbox, the little, uh, the little cars. And I had a Lunchbox uh, with Matchbox on the, on the outside. And in the inside, I had stacks of pink tickets where I had written all my Panther stories. Um, and I and actually had drawn some Panther comics, even though I wasn't that good at drawing. But, you know, I had some Panther comics. And I went to the receptionist and I kind of, you know, gave her this, you know, kind of embarrassed, but I gave her this little matchbox thing. And I'm like, hey, you know, you know, I got this comic idea, you know, it's called the Panthers. And she kind of looked at me and she goes, well, you know, there's this you know, junior kid, you know, program that you can sign up for. And I'm like, what? Like junior? Like, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a junior thing. I'm not a kid. You know, I mean, I didn't think of myself as a kid. I, you know, I wanted to be taken seriously, you know, but I'm like, I'm not some kid, you know? So, uh, so, but, you know, but she, of course, she kind of politely blew me off. Um, and I was a little bummed out, but there was a big bin of comics. And it was kind of like a candy dish where it's like, yeah, you know, feel free to take a little candy. 
but instead it was comics. And I was like, this is so cool. And and so I just kind of dove into this bin and I just grabbed, you know, a bunch of comics and I was happy because they're free comics. So I was like, okay, cool. The, the, the people who were not impressed with me and who really did not care about my writing were, were my parents. Um, they kept blowing it off and treating it as if uh, I, you know, it was just a, it was just a silly uh, phase I was going through. It was just some childhood delusion. Uh, you know, when I grew up, I'd realized that it was silly to, to want to be a writer. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not something that you know, serious people really think about doing. And if I was serious, I would just, you know, work in the restaurant. That, that's what, that's what I should be doing. And, you know, my dad, you know, he, he almost had this cult-like obsession with the restaurant business. He worked in it day and night, every day, um, even on holidays, even during hurricanes. He never, he never got sick. If he was sick, he still went to work. Uh, for him, you know, um, we had an almost Scientology-like uh, zeal for the restaurant. And uh, my siblings, too, they, they were completely sucked into it. So, you know, I, I think my brother uh, had some interest in, in being a mechanic. He loved machines and cars and motorcycles. And my sister loved fashion. Uh, but, you know, that just kind of went away. It's like, no, you're not going to do that stuff. You're going to be you're going to be in the restaurant business. And that's what they did. And of course, my siblings were much, much older uh, than me. Um, you know, so my brother, you know, he, he took over a restaurant and my sister took over the restaurant. You know, they, they managed, they cooked, they did everything. And it was kind of expected that I would do the same, you know, which I think is one of the reasons why my dad did not really care to encourage me or to help me in any way. Uh, he didn't read my stories. He didn't ask me what I was doing. He didn't ask me what I was writing about. He, he just, he had zero interest. And it wasn't just him. Nobody had any interest. My sister didn't care. My brother didn't care. Uh, one time my brother, you know, he kind of turned to me. Uh, this is when I was in college. And he goes, you know, he says, you know, once you take a few uh, college classes, you're going to realize you're nothing special. You're just like everybody else. And you're going to just end up in the restaurant like me. And maybe he said that because, I don't know, he was jealous that, that I was trying to pursue something that he, that he, you know, didn't have an opportunity to pursue, you know, because he didn't even go to college. And my sister too, like didn't even have a chance to go to college. My, my dad says, I'm not going to pay for your college uh, because you're a girl and you don't need it and you're just going to work in the restaurant anyway. So what's the point of you going to college? Um, I'm the only one that went to college kind of because I was, you know, younger and because I sort of insisted that I was going to go, you know. But um, I really resisted the restaurant life, the restaurant business, because I wanted to be a writer. I mean, that was my goal. Um, I remember when I graduated with my associate's degree, I was so nervous thinking about publishing. And I, I literally couldn't, I couldn't sleep the whole night. And I went to graduation like a zombie, you know, because... I was thinking about my time is approaching that I'm going to have to stop coming up with excuses and I was going to start having to really try to get published, you know, for real. Um, in high school, I actually uh, completed, well, it was between high school and college, I actually completed my first full-length novel. It was called The Nomad. And it was, a, you know, it was a 90,000 word novel. And I wrote this when I was, you know, 17, 18 years old. Um, just to show you that, you know, I was very serious um, about, about the writing business. Even, you know, even then I was, I was prepared to write novels. Um, so, but my parents were opposed to it. Another thing, when I was uh, 12, again, this is before computers, um, I wanted a typewriter and my birthday was coming around and I asked my dad, I said, dad, for my birthday, I want you to buy me a typewriter. And this is a, a brother typewriter, by the way. And he kind of looked at me like, what do you want a typewriter for? Like, like it was just, it was, this is a crazy request. You know, I was a 12 year old asked for a typewriter. Like, well, I, because I want to be a writer. You know, I, I kept, I kept having to say this to him over and over again, you know, um,
And so, and so I got the typewriter and I taught myself how to type. And I actually wrote a couple books using a typewriter, you know. Uh, it was it was difficult because I couldn't backspace and, you know, didn't have the functionality of, of a word processor. Later, I, I got my first computer. Um, I got a Commodore Amiga that had 500 kilobytes of RAM. And again, I you know, of course... I like to play video games on it, but I also got it so that I could, you know, write my my books. And I did. I wrote a lot of very long stories on that Commodore. In fact, that's what I used to write Dinotes' Adventures when I was 14, which I sent to publishers. I got onto the internet for the first time, and I discovered that the internet was a good place to... Um, connect with strangers who were readers and try to get them to, uh, you know, read my work and see what they think. And um, so my first website was called Nick Story Page because I'd never made a website before. And keep in mind, the internet was extremely primitive back then. So you had to like know like HTML coding to, to be able to make a website in those days. So, and I really, I, I didn't like take a class in coding. I just sort of, kind of like went to websites that were similar to what I wanted to do and I would just kind of um, right click and just kind of look at the code and try to learn on my own how to code. So I made a website called Nick's Story Page, but nobody found it because nobody knew who I was and nobody knew anything about my, my stories. And so they weren't really going to, to read over my work that way. So I realized what I had to do is I had to write about something that people already knew about. And I noticed, you know, that's kind of how I discovered fan fiction. And fan fiction gets a lot of flack. You know, when people, when people talk about bad writing, they, they say fan fiction. It's like fan, the, the word fan fiction has become synonymous with bad fiction. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the reason that I wrote fan fiction, I actually preferred to write my own stuff. I, I, I always wrote, created my own characters, my own plots, and my own settings. Uh, I didn't like to write in other people's, uh, with other people's IPs, you know. But with the internet, I sort of had to. Because how else were people going to discover my work? And so what I decided to do is write a fan fiction about He-Man and the Masters of the Universe because when I, I grew up with He-Man and I loved He-Man um, and I still had all my action figures kind of in my closet. And so I said, well, you know, I guess I'll just, you know, I'll write He-Man fan fiction and that way people will discover my work and they'll read it and, you know, give me their feedback. And they did. And it was extremely popular. Um, at the time, there were not uh, fan fiction websites. There was just uh, what, uh, what are called mailing lists. This is a very primitive form of social media. But what was nice about it is that it wasn't like we weren't overwhelmed with, you know, with subscribers. You know, we didn't have tens of thousands of, of people talking to each other like you might see on a, on a Facebook group, you know. Um, it was basically a handful of people, maybe less than 100 people, uh, that were just, you know, still really liked He-Man and liked talking about He-Man as, as adults. And basically what you do is you would just forward an email to a list of people. And then uh, I made a website called Grayskull Library, uh, again, with very primitive, you know, HTML. I think I had a limit of 10 megabytes. It was basically just text. It was just a lot of text. And um, people were very excited to read what I was writing. I mean, I was always getting emails, uh, fan letters saying, you know, this is great. When are you going to write the next chapter? Uh, I probably never got more praise in my life than, than at that time, you know. Uh, and I remember there was a contest where people in the mailing list voted on their favorite stories. And they voted uh, my one of my stories won first place. Uh, another one of my stories won second place. And the third of my stories won third place. It, I'm not saying this to brag or anything. I'm just trying to explain why I felt that I had reached this level where I could 
seriously consider trying to get published. And so I wrote this book called The Dark Age of Enya. And it was a real serious attempt at, at trying to get published. But the problem was at the time is that you would send a manuscript off to a publisher and they would actually tell you, you have to wait a year to get a response. And I didn't really want to wait a year because I had a bunch of people clamoring for my book. that They wanted to, uh, to, to read The Dark Age of Enya. I'd, I'd actually um, put some sample chapters up on my website and people really responded well to it. And so I'm like, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to consider uh, vanity publishing or self-publishing, which again, at the time, was very, very stigmatized. It, you know, vanity publishing is just considered, you know, publishing for people that suck at writing. You know, even though I have my bachelor's degree and I was pursuing a master's degree and, uh, and you know, I had a lot of fans and people loving my work, um, but you know, but I, I just wanted to get my, my, my content out there. And so, so it's, it's not like I wasn't trying to get published the traditional way I was, but I was just eager to get my book out. And so I, I use this company called Ex Libris and, uh, and they published the dark age of Enya and, uh, and I, you know, I, I sold, you know, a bunch to, you know, the, the few fans that I had. Um, but it really, it didn't really explode. Like I sent it to some reviewers and they either, they ignored the book or they just, they, they weren't interested. People weren't interested, you know, uh, because I was going into a different world. This wasn't the world of fan fiction. This was the world of, you know, traditional publishing, and the bar for traditional publishing was much, much, much higher. And I didn't quite know it at the time. There was a, these fiction forums where people would go and they would just talk about books that they, that they liked to read. And they would critique books. But at the time, people were incredibly hostile to, to, uh, to authors who were trying to promote their work. There was just a lot of hostility. Uh, if, if you went on those forums and you even talked, you, you even just kind of in passing, just kind of mentioned that you're a writer or mentioned that you had a book, uh, people were very hostile toward you. Um, it's like they felt like, you know, how, you know, how dare you come here and pretend that you're a real writer? It wasn't like I had other options. Where could I go to tell people about my book? Uh, but there was a way to submit my book to a critic. And so I submitted my book to a critic. And the critic gave it a 5 out of 10. And I was completely devastated. Completely. I was destroyed by this news. Um, and, um, and what was even worse about it is that a lot of people just said, oh, let's just make fun of this guy who thinks he can be a writer. And so I had people, you know, basically telling me, you know, that, you know, self-published writers, these people have no imagination. All they do is copy Lord of the Rings. That's all they do. And that really, that really hurt the most because it was such a mischaracterization of the book I had written. My book has nothing to do, nothing to do with Lord of the Rings. And I think what's even more insulting is that if you go to the bookstore and you go to the fantasy section, most books or so many books you can find are copies of Lord of the Rings. There are so many, 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 many published books that I could point to where they either basically rip off a bunch of ideas from Tolkien or they're exact copies of Tolkien. One of the most successful authors uh, that I know is Ari Salvatore. And he wrote a book called Streams of Silver. And the plot of Streams of Silver goes like this. There is a, uh, a dwarf and he is looking to get back to his home, uh, the home of the dwarves. He's looking to find 
the home of the dwarves, which is a mine. And all the dwarves were driven out of this mine because a dragon showed up with his fiery breath and chased all the dwarves away. And so he gets together with an elf and with a halfling, which is basically like a hobbit, uh, to go in search of their, their, the lost dwarven home. And, uh, and in the end, they, they get into the mine, they, they find the secret mine, and they fight the dragon and they kill it, and the dwarf reclaims his lost home. Meanwhile, the halfling has a magical pendant around his neck. It's not a ring, but it's a magical pendant that is slowly corrupting his mind and turning him evil because he doesn't know that this is a magical pendant. And there's a bad guy who is trying to hunt down the halfling to take the pendant from him. Now, give me a break. If this is not a direct copy of The Hobbit, I don't know what is. There's no dwarves in my book. There's no elves in my book. There's no goblins in my book. Uh, okay, there's some, okay, there are creatures that were similar to goblins, but, but you know, and there's no orcs in my book. Um, and there's nothing in my book having to do with uh, an evil ring or an evil uh, lord trying to take over the world. It's really different. And people who have read the Anya series, I think, can attest to the fact that it's nothing like Lord of the Rings other than just to say, well, it's a fantasy setting. Yeah, and that's, about, that's where the similarities end. It's a fantasy setting. That's it. So after that, you know, I just, you know, I decided, okay, you know what? Self-publishing is dumb. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to focus on um, traditional publishing. The problem with that was that I met a girl uh, named Hinda. And I'm not complaining about that. Uh, meeting Hinda was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Uh, we had a fairy tale Disney-esque romance for for two years. She, she's the best person in the world and I love her to death. And so, of course, you know, I wasn't going to say, well, I can't marry you because, you know, I want to be a writer. We had to get married. And the other problem, though, is that Hinda was, she was a foreign student from Morocco. And she was here on a student visa. So she couldn't stay here very long. And she had actually overstayed her visa. So she was supposed to go back. And this was in 2001 when we started dating. We started dating in January of 2001. And if you know anything about 2001, you know that that is <clears throat> when 9-11 happened. And uh, <clears throat> on the day that the World Trade Center was collapsing... Uh, me and me and uh, Hinda, we were you know we were very serious. We were living together, and uh, and I woke up and I opened the television, and I saw the smoke from the towers collapsing, having collapsed, and the first thing that came to my mind, b b besides oh my God, what a what a horrible tragedy, the first thing that came to my mind was, oh my God. What is this going to mean for Hinda? Because I knew that Osama bin Laden was responsible. I knew that he was Muslim, and I knew that Muslims were going to be uh, were going to be blamed for the collapse of the Twin Towers. And my wife, well, not my wife at the time, but you know, my my girlfriend uh, was Muslim, and so and they did start, you know, getting more uh, strict with immigration. They started rounding up uh, illegal uh, Muslim immigrants or uh, anyone really from an Islamic country, and they started sending them back. And at the time, if they sent you back to your country, you could not come back for 10 years. You couldn't even apply to come back for 10 years. And so I got really scared. I'm like, oh my God, you know, if they, if they catch my wife... I'm not going to see her for 10 years unless I move to Morocco with her, which, of course, is something I didn't want to do. And so I, you know, I realized, well, you know, we have to get married. And you know, I did love her, um, so we got married um, so that, you know, she wouldn't be kicked out. So we got married. And, uh, and then the other problem is that my wife is diabetic. 
And when we met, she was 27. And when we got married, she was um, she was 28, 29, you know, around that age. And I knew, and, she, and this was a concern of hers as well, that as a diabetic person, uh, you are at a greater risk of complications for pregnancy. And so right away, she's thinking, well, I, you know, I don't want to wait too long to get pregnant. I, I don't want to wait past 30 to have a baby because it's going to be more difficult for me to have a baby. And so right away, uh, within a very short time, a couple years, I went from being a college student pursuing my literary ambitions and a master's degree in history to being married and having a child. And so, of course, I needed money. I, I couldn't, you know, live in a tiny one-room apartment in New York City. Uh, I needed money. And, of course, you know, where was that money going to come from? Well, my dad had a very lucrative restaurant business. And so, of course, I went into the restaurant business. And, I, of course, I did worry a lot and say, man, you know, how am I going to be a writer now, you know? But, you know, my mom assured me, she says, you know, don't worry, you can do both. You know, if, if, if you own your own business, you can make your own hours and you can, you know, work the days you want. And, um, and you don't have to worry about, about uh, you know, not being a writer. Uh, but the problem was that my mom was wrong. Uh, you know, running a restaurant is a lot of hard work. And even if you make your own hours and days, uh, there's always problems. There's always, oh, we're missing a cook or the AC broke down or the manager quit or there's always problems. Um, so I tried to do both for, uh, for 20 years now. I've been trying to do both. I still, you know, I still run the restaurant and I thought, you know, if I could just write a really good book, Maybe, and it makes a lot of money, maybe that's going to launch my writing career and I'll be able to abandon the restaurant. But first, what I wanted to do is I wanted to rewrite The Dark Age of Enya. The Dark Age of Enya was inspired by the books that I liked to read, right? So it was inspired by a lot of the classics, a lot of myths like um, the Norse myths, the Greek myths, uh, the, the Kalevala, which is a book of the Finnish myths. I love those books. I loved reading Homer. I, I love the Iliad. I love the Odyssey. And I also liked reading things like Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, A Princess of Mars and Tarzan. And if you look at any of that stuff, you'll see that the style is very different. The storytelling is very much on the surface. It, it doesn't really delve into the character's thoughts and feelings. It's all just what you see is what you get. It's almost like a script for a movie. And that's kind of what I wanted, the way that I wrote my first book. But, um, but I, you know, after my first book failed, I said, well, I kind of have to learn how modern fantasy books are, are written. Even though I really didn't enjoy them that much, I said, I got to learn how, how to do this. So I started reading a lot of modern authors. Like I read George R. Martin. I read Game of Thrones uh, many, many years before it became popular, you know, many years before the TV show. And I said, okay, I need to try to write more like this, you know. So I rewrote The Dark Age of Enya and it became a new book. An entire, at first I just thought I'm just going to edit my book. And try to make it more like uh, more like a modern novel, but I realized that that really wasn't possible. And what I was doing is I was editing so much, and nothing was left. It was basically I had thrown out every single sentence, and I just kind of just everything was new. So I said, you know what? I'm not even going to bother even looking at the old book. I'm just going to rewrite this book, and that's what I did. I rewrote my first book, and uh, and it took me how long did that take me? Nine years. It took me nine years to rewrite the Dark Age of Enya into what is today Ages of Enya. And the reason it took that long is because I was really busy working at the restaurant and taking care of my, my children. I you know, ended up having two kids. 
I got a lot of you know good positive reviews from readers, um, but um, but the publishers and agents weren't biting, and I didn't know why. And I tried to do a lot of research on this, and I basically found out that they don't like to take risks. Agents and publishers they like to publish things that are very similar to other books, and so the irony here is that. While I was being criticized on fiction forums for writing something that was too similar to Tolkien, in the publishing world, that's what they want. They want you to be writing something that's very similar to, to a book that already is on the shelf. You know, and you see this all the time. You know, uh, Harry Potter becomes popular, and then you get a flood of similar kid books. Right? You get like Rick Riordan basically copied. J.K. Rowling when he wrote The Lightning Thief. You know, The Lightning Thief is just Harry Potter, but instead of wizards, they're Greek demigods. You know, all the kids are, you know, sons of gods. You know, Fifty Shades of Grey gets published, and then there's an entire new section of the bookstore of what is basically just bondage porn because that book did so damn well. So, uh, so a few years after that, I wrote The Princess of Anya. And I tried to write something that was a little more mainstream because Agents of Anya is unusual. I mean, the main characters are basically nudists. They, you know, Xander and Thalana are, are naked as a lot in the book. And, you know, people say, well, there's so much nudity in Game of Thrones. Well, there's nowhere near as much nudity in Game of Thrones. There is not even a fraction, not even a tenth uh, as much nudity in Game of Thrones as there is in, in Ages of Anya, you know. Uh, I mean, your Daenerys gets naked a lot in Game of Thrones, but, you know, in, in Ages of Anya, Daenerys would just be naked all the time. She'd just be fighting naked and riding her dragon naked. And what really makes, I think, Ages of Anya different is that it's uh, a little-known genre called um, Sword and Planet. And what Sword of Planet is, it's basically you're taking elements of science fiction and elements of fantasy and you're mixing them together. And I think one of the best examples of this um, is uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' A Princess of Mars. And uh, Anya is like that. You know, I talk about how Anya is a planet and how there's primitive technology in this world, but it's been lost. Uh millennia ago and the main characters they fight with swords but that technology is is it, it exists and it's hidden and a lot of the races are very alien like races there's no elves and dwarves in my book there's bird people people that can fly and there's aquatic creatures called murkwid which are like creatures from the black lagoon you know so i wrote the princess of anya which was inspired by books like The Neverending Story, uh, The Last Unicorn, and Watership Down. Kind of like these fairy tale fantasy stories. And they had a much more straightforward story, and the characters were more straightforward. You know, Radia, you know, she wears clothes, and Democron, you know, the, the main uh, hero, uh, also wears clothes. And so wasn't anything too bizarre, too radical. But again, my wife, you know, I, I, you know, I got so sick and tired of rejection letters that I actually had my wife, um, um, you know, send out query letters for me and, and receive the rejection letters for me. And it was very disheartening. And I started to think to myself, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm not that good uh, of, a, of a writer. You know, I, I don't know why I'm getting rejected. And I think that's what everybody that likes to criticize um, self-published writers, that's what they'll say. They'll say, well, you know, you suck. You, if, if you are a failure, it's because you're not good. So what I decided to do is self-publish The Princess of Anya, and I was going to, I sent it out to a bunch of readers, and the response from readers is overwhelmingly positive. And these are not people that I know. By the way, these are people that are just acquaintances uh, that that 
I know them only because they're fans of my writing, you know, because they they fell in love with my writing and now they're my friends or sometimes we talk to each other. But other than that, I haven't met these people in person. I don't know them. They're not relatives. They're not close friends. And they adore the book. Um, one person said that they cried after they finished Princess of Ania. Another person said that they uh, that it was so beautifully written that they that they didn't know why I'm not published or like this guy should be published, you know. And another uh, person said that they couldn't stop thinking about it and that it affected them as much as another book that they read that was a published book. It's called The Night Circus. And they said, this book is, it's stuck in my head like The Night Circus. So with that kind of praise, you'd think, why the, why the hell am I not published or at least have an agent? It, it's frustrating, you know? It's frustrating. So, um... So I decided, you know what, if I'm really going to prove myself, I should send my book out to some critics, some book critics. Uh, so, I sent, so I sent my book out to two book critics, to Indie Reader and to Kirkus Magazine. Uh, I personally know a writer um, that is uh, very successful, and you can find his books all over uh, the, the major book chains. Uh, he, he's got his shelf space. And, um, and I've been trying to get him to, you know, to help me out, give me a shout out. And he's a bit of a jerk. This guy will, will not read my book. He will not, you know, give it a, give it any buzz. But, but he said, well, you know, these book reviews don't really count, right? Because you paid for them. But what he doesn't realize is that, well, if you get a regular reader to review the book, people are going to say, well, that reader, you know, maybe you know them. Maybe they're a friend of yours. Maybe, you know, that doesn't count. You know, it has to be a professional critic. But if it's a professional critic, you have to pay them because these professional critics get bombarded by reviews. They're not going to do it for free, right? And reading a book takes a very long time. If I send a 120,000-word book to somebody, okay, why are they going to read that book for free when it might take them two, three weeks to do that, to, to read a book uh, of that length? And even if they were willing to do it for free, why would they do it for free when they probably get hundreds or thousands of requests every week? Okay, because there's so many people trying to get published these days. So if they get hundreds of reviews, uh, requests for reviews every week, they can only pick one or two. Tops. And so it makes sense that they would ask for money to just, just to narrow down the number of people that they can that they can review. And so Indie Reader, they reviewed Princess of Anya and they gave it a 4.7 out of 5 stars. And they said that it wasn't just a great indie book, that it was a great book, period. They really liked it. They were very impressed with it. Um, and then Kirkus Magazine, which is probably the most prestigious um, book review magazine in, in the country, maybe in the world. They've been around since the 1930s. They're not going to, you know, ruin their reputation just to make money, I don't think. Um, so, so they gave my review, uh, they gave my book a good review, and they included it in their list of 20, their 20 top indie books uh, worth reading list. And so I'm like, okay, awesome. And yet I cannot get a fucking agent. And I'm 47 years old and I can't get an agent. I can't get a publisher. Um, and so, and this is after a lifetime of, of trying to master the art of storytelling. And so what I realized is that what I really need to do is I need to write more books. Uh, Stephen King, you know, started looking more at Stephen King. And I'm thinking, okay, this guy has written 60 books in his lifetime. 60. And he's not, he's older than me, but not that much older. You know, and how many books have I, have I written? And I'm, I'm nearing 50. And I've written three, okay? 
And why? Because I've been so busy with the damn restaurant, you know? And so, you know, I got together with my wife and, you know, our kids are much older now. I have a, a daughter who's going to be uh, graduate from high school next year. And we have an 11 year old uh, who is, you know, very self-sufficient. And uh, I talked it over with my wife and we decided that uh, it's time to sell the restaurant because I can't do both, you know. Uh, if I'm going to succeed in this business, I need to devote my entire life to it. I need to wake up every day, write four hours a day, uh, read as much as I can um, to really make my mark in this world because this is a, a world where we are saturated for entertainment and we are saturated despite how many entertainment options are out there we are saturated with people, all of whom want to be writers, think they can be writers, have not devoted their lives to writing, didn't go to college for writing, haven't spent, you know, 10,000 hours learning to write, and yet they think that they can be writers, and that really drives me nuts. And so I'm sure that whenever I send my, my query letter out to publishers, they're, you know, they're getting that letter, but they're also getting hundreds of other letters from people who probably just, they have not yet developed the skills to be published, you know? So, so that's basically my story so far. That's where I am. I'm proud of what I've done. I'm proud of my books. I stand by them. I think they're great books. I think that the Princess of Vania deserves to be on the shelf. When you hear what people have to say about my work, I'm convinced that it, it is at least a lot better than a lot of the books that are published that aren't really that good. But again, we are not living in a meritocracy. Sometimes there's a lot of luck involved. Sometimes it helps to know people in the business it helps to be in the right place at the right time. Sometimes talent and hard work isn't enough to succeed. So, um, so now, yeah, so starting probably next year, if I can find a buyer for the restaurant, um, despite my, you know, my parents now, they're, they're still alive, uh, but they're very old. My dad's 89 years old. And, um, and I think that, you know, he's at a point now where he, you know, he's starting to forget things. He doesn't fully know what's what's going on. And I think that, you know, at, at this point in time in my life, I'm like, I can't be living my, my father's life. I can't be living my father's dream. Uh, I need to pursue full time what I've been wanting to do since I was six years old. So this is, uh, this is my journey. This is my life's journey that, that I've, that I've been you know, going on for 40, 41 years. And um, I don't know where it's going to lead me. I don't know if I'm going to you know, become a successful author in my lifetime or not. Maybe I'm going to fail, but, you know, this is all I've ever known. This is all I've ever wanted. And that's what I'm going to do. So that's my story, and I hope you found it interesting. Please uh, check out my website. I have a website called nickalamonos.com and you can read excerpts of my books you can read poems and short stories that I've written that are for free uh, you can look at a lot of artwork uh, there's an interactive map of Enya that you can uh, click on places on the map and it'll pull up a more detailed uh, part of the map um, and, uh, and if you find it interesting and compelling, uh, then I would please, you know, ask that you uh, consider uh, getting the books. You can get them directly from my website and I will give you a little bookmark to go with it and I'll sign the books for you. Uh, or you can go to Amazon um, if you find that more reliable and you can get the books from you know, directly from Amazon. Um, and, uh, and if you do read and enjoy them, uh, I would ask that you tell people about Enya. Um, 
that you leave a review. You can leave reviews on Goodreads. You can leave reviews on Amazon. You know, help me uh, so that my life story has a has a has a good ending. So so that's it, and uh, thanks for listening. Bye.